So this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me uh, one more time if you're able to do so. And uh, welcome again. We're glad you're here. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 4. And we've been in a series this whole season of Lent, the 40 days excluding Sundays heading up to Easter that started on Ash Wednesday. And now as we are in this, this Sunday, a Palm Sunday, heading into Holy Week, we are doing the last part of this series. We talked about the baptism of Christ and the implications of baptism and some practicalities around baptism in the first messages. And then we spent some weeks uh, with Andreas and a guest and myself talking through the temptations of Jesus coming into and out of the wilderness with Satan. And then last Sunday, we pivoted to Jesus' public ministry in Luke chapter 4, where he is introduced in the gospel. And we've been tracking with Luke, by the way. We're using Luke in this series, the gospel writer Luke. Um, and we talked about Jesus' entry into public ministry in the temple, in which he goes into the synagogue in his hometown and reads this great passage about liberation and uh, being set free and release, and then began to ask questions about how that applies to us. So today, as we come to Palm Sunday, as the beginning of Holy Week starts, we are going to look at Luke chapter 19, and this is sort of this, the bracket. So all along from Luke chapter 6 to Luke chapter 19, Jesus is moving towards his final entry into Jerusalem, which leads into the events of Holy Week. And so here we are, and this is his beginning, his, his last sort of his exodus out of public ministry in terms of teaching and preaching. And he, and he begins it this way, and there's more teaching he'll do before he, of course, is taken and arrested and all of that. So we are in this looking at what's called the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. And it'll be on the screen, and I'm going to read it out loud as well. And uh, so follow along. We'll start at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany and the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, telling them, go to the village ahead of you. And when you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, so uh, there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. And so those that were sent ahead found it exactly as he told them. Verse 33. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and had Jesus get on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the road. And as he approached the road, leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the very stones will cry out. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather, both in this room and online, on these live streaming Sundays. This opportunity to recenter our lives around your story. And God, there are forces that are forming us all week long in ways that are counter to being centered in the love revealed in you, Jesus and in the Creator. And so we come today and we submit one to another by the work of the Spirit and the image of God in each other and to your, your, your word, your living word and the book of the church and the worship and all of the things. And so God, as we move into this passage and move into this week of celebration and remembrance and mourning, continue to shape us in a new way. 
Use us as part of your new humanity that draws others into this way centered in you. And Lord, help us to be quick to repent and turn towards you. Empower us. Awaken us. Enlighten us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Please be seated this morning. There are some songs that apparently are just so good that it's hard not to sing along when they come on in the car. Do any of you have any songs like that? Song comes in a car, you start to sing or at least hum, tap the steering wheel if you're pretty introverted or whatever. Well, apparently in uh, 2017, that was the case for Montreal native Taufik Muala when CNC Music Factories, I don't know how you say it, CNC Music Factories, 1990s hit, Gonna Make You So Everybody Dance Now, and I know the little refrain, Everybody Dance Now, came on while he was driving. So Moala began to sing along, and presumably he must have done this with some great enthusiasm, if you're familiar with the song. And quickly he noticed that there were now police lights behind him as he is totally jamming out in the car to his jam, this song, this 90s hit, going, just having a good old time. He said, I was thinking they wanted to pass, but they called on the speaker, please go to the right, please go to the right, he told reporters. He said, so I stopped, and four police came, two on each side of my car, and checked the inside of the car. Then they asked me if I was screaming, and I said, no, I was just singing. <laughs> Apparently, and I didn't know this, this is me, immigrant in Canada, learning new things, Montreal has varying bylaws depending on the neighborhood, but police apparently felt that this case fell under the category of noise resulting from cries, clamors, singing, altercation, or cursing, or any other form of uproar. And he was violating Montreal's neighborhood city bylaw for this neighborhood. And so in this part of the city, it earned this 38-year-old father of two $118 ticket. And he said, I don't know if my voice was very bad, and that's why I got the ticket, but I was very shocked. I've heard some singing out of cars that I, I, you know, if I could issue a ticket, I'd probably do it too, but it's funny. Uh, NPR was relaying this in an article recounting the story uh, with an amused question for the Montreal police. How do you not sing to this song? I guess, you know, it just draws you out. This story that we're reading here, true story of Jesus' life, obviously got to a point where they had to declare, they had to raise their voices. Something compelled them to declare from the Psalms who Jesus is and who he was. Now, I want to throw a map on the screen here just for a moment. It's also in your notes to kind of give you a, a sense of what was going on, where Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And you'll hear the language like both heading down to Jerusalem and up to Jerusalem. In general, you're coming out of the, the, this deep, deep valley. And so there's a sense that you're coming up and then you're coming down into the city. So when you hear that language in the Gospels, there is both an up and down aspect to it. And so he's outside of Jerusalem where the scene that we're here looking at today happens, but right before he enters the city. And in fact, the rest of the passage is really powerful as well, but we don't have time to unpack all of that. But we just want to get this idea of the geography. I don't always throw maps up, very rarely in fact, but I do think it's important to understand, especially in this day where there's those saying, well, Jesus was not real and these things were all cooked up and blah, blah, blah. There's so much evidence 
to that. If you dig into the historicity of Jesus and what was going on in this ancient world, like these are things that if you're making stories up, you don't have this level of granular detail. And this kind of granular detail and eyewitnesses are named all over the ancient biographies we call the Gospels. I just want to say that by way of apologetics for those of you that may hear or, or people that have gone through deconstruction and say, the church never gave, like the church never gave me any way to think about this or that or the other thing. Well, hopefully, Pilgrim, we at least give you more to think about and to send you off in other directions than a lot of the uh, sort of like, if you're going to fully deconstruct from your faith, at least know what you're deconstructing from versus like abstracts or the worst parts of people acting badly in Jesus' name. But anyway, historicity, what's going on here in this heading into Jerusalem? So here he is uh, in this passage, we have this entry or the messianic arrival. Jesus is announcing himself now for the final time and fully preparing and laying the, the groundwork for his arrest and crucifixion as declaring that he is the hope of ancient Israel and not only ancient Israel, of all of us all time. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who saves, the one who delivers. And so here we see Jesus moving into that. I would also note that Luke adds some stuff beyond some of the other gospels. For example, he uh, adds the stuff about weeping over Jerusalem, which we're not going to get into, but that's just immediately following this as he gets closer to the city. Okay, so let's look a little more at this passage. We're just going to walk through it, ask some questions, and then uh, send you out today. In Luke chapter 19, starting verse 28, again, let's look at 28 and 29 that we read. It says, he's going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, his final ascent to Jerusalem. And two disciples are sent ahead, we're told, in what must have been a bit of a confusing mission. Go find a colt, a young donkey, go find a, do go find a colt. <laughs> and so, kind of funny, right? Like, we're going to send you, go, go get a donkey. Okay, all right, well, that's interesting. He's never asked us to do that before. And the disciples uh, in this entry section, they go get the colt. The disciples are named again and again in this narrative that Luke gives us. The disciples place Jesus on the cult. The disciples call him king who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a focus here on the disciples in this passage. And I think that's really important to name as well. So Luke carries the narrative along in verse 30. He says, go into the village ahead of you. And when you enter it, you'll find this cult tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, what are you untying? Just say, the Lord needs it. Can you imagine uh, someone coming up to you, someone that you've been following, being discipled by for three years and saying, go to the neighbors uh, and uh, don't get their Maserati. Go get their most uh, beat up VW bug from the 1970s. Get that car, no AC, crank windows, uh, and, and uh, just take it because we're going to need it for the road trip we're about to take. Um, just, just imagine like how you'd, you'd think, wow, this is a really bizarre request. But they've been with him. They've seen miracles. They've seen, so they're like, okay, we're going to go get the VW bug or whatever. Um, and uh, I'm trying to contemporize that. I don't know if VW bug works for a donkey, but, you know, let's go with it. Uh, but it would have to be one that had not been used before, right? So, you know, no, uh, no uh, whatever smells are in it. It's, it's like a, it's been, it's a, I don't know, it's been in mothballs or whatever. Anyway, okay, that analogy broke down real fast. But uh, <laughs> so he's saying, go get this thing. So he goes to the village and he says, when you enter, you'll find it there. And again, this anticipation, it's interesting that Jesus anticipates the questions that are going to be asked when they go get this donkey or ask for this, this young donkey that's never been ridden on before. But he supplies them also with the words. And this is fascinating. The Lord needs it. Like I could do a whole ancient word of faith sermon on that right there, that God oftentimes will call us to do things that seem a bit strange, but when we test it and we sense the word of the Lord is with us, it's amazing. Sometimes things open up that you just wouldn't normally expect. And that is exactly what's going on here. 
Now, it may have been the ancient customs of Angaria with this is this idea that a civic leader could request short-term use of an animal only to return later, uh, sort of like a temporary, um, what is it called when the police like see something temporarily because in the middle of something massive going on, what's the English, what's the word we use for that? What is that? I don't know, I didn't put it in my notes, but anyway, there's a word for that we use as well, but it could have been that. But as we go along in the narrative, we, we, we learn a little more. Now, I want to just pause for a moment here and say that he is referencing things that we see in some Old Testament passages as well. The gospel writers are kind of careful to constantly draw this comparison of Jesus with the expectations of ancient Israel. Expectations that they had around kings, expectations that they had around the priests, and the expectations that they also had around the prophets. That the gospel writers are showing that Jesus is, uh, is directly connected to both the priestly role in the Old Testament, offering sacrifice. He is directly connected with the, the kingly role, this idea of divine rule uh, and, and bringing sort of God's order into a space. But also this prophetic role as well. Speaking truth and declaring what God desires and prophetic actions, also driving out demons, healing people, declaring uh, that justice will come to the land and demonstrating that as well in various ways. And so in this passage, keep in mind, these things are all going on and the ancient reader of this and certainly a person within the Jewish context would be making these connections in their brain as well. And not only do we see that Jesus is sort of the fullness of these prophet, priest, and king roles as the gospel writers present them. He is now changing, and actually he is redefining those roles in what will be argued by the New Testament in a way that is um, more full than they were even when they were first given, because he is more than just someone fulfilling the roles. He's actually redefining them and bringing them to a fullness. All right, so let's keep going here. We're halfway through this. He said, so those went ahead, found it exactly as he told them. And they were untying the cold, and the owner said, why are you doing that, of course? Why are you taking my car? Um, and they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt. And Jesus got on, he rode along, and spread their cloaks on the road. Now, just to pause again, uh, how does this whole donkey thing, taking the animal, this young animal, how does this go down? There's a couple different ways to, to reflect on this. Um, one of it is that perhaps... Uh, this was a prearranged password. Some people have argued that, that Jesus had already done his, his footwork ahead of time, and this was an aligned thing. Most biblical scholars lean towards, based on everything else as Luke is saying, it might have been disciples or you know people who were following Jesus at a distance, so, they so when they heard that the Lord needs it, they were willingly giving it. But there's this still sense that there's divine foreknowledge going on here. There's a prophetic word going on here as well. That this is a purpose that, this, uh, that God had known, known, that Jesus had known, that this would be where it was at in this time and with these people. So there's some interesting ways to look at that whole cult situation. I'm more of a person that would lean towards what Luke is doing in general. That maybe it was owned by disciples, but that Jesus was operating not according to a prearranged plan at this point, but rather by his ability to see or have this uh, Holy Spirit divine word or, or vision for what needs to happen in this moment. Um, okay, well, let me go on a little for the farther here. I don't know if you knew this, but last yesterday was the, the anniversary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's death in 9 April 1945. And uh, Bonhoeffer was hanged in Flossenburg concentration camp about three weeks before Hitler's suicide or the end of World War II. Talk about bad timing, right? He had studied theology, and before his ordination, he did a student exchange to the U.S., and there he saw firsthand the evils of racism, 
little guessing how uh, relevant it would soon become to life in Germany. He was ordained, you know, like all good people and everywhere in the world, we look at the evils of the United States and like, we can't be that bad. Well, welcome back home. Look at the evils around. He was ordained and then lectured at Berlin University and his talk of peace there was unpopular. And so Bonhoeffer had this, had he lived, it would have been very fascinating to see where his theology would have gone. In fact, there's people that have done PhDs in that specific issue of developing some of Bonhoeffer's ethics and so forth. And his talk of peace there was unpopular, but his heart lay a confirmation class that he focused on uh, with 50 boys that were from a slum estate. The church in Germany at the time was riddled with nationalism, anti-Semitism, and compromise. But Bonhoeffer, he withdrew to a Lutheran church in London, but he knew that he had to eventually return to Germany. And so he became the director of the Confessing Church Seminary and was responsible for 25 men whom he tried to raise in community and following the way of Jesus as they were being formed as seminarians and future pastors and priests. They dispersed when the Nazis closed the seminary, but they secretly studied under Bonhoeffer assessing the cost of discipleship. The net tightened around the Jews as Bonhoeffer withdrew again, but knowing he returns again as a pacifist, most certainly certain to face death. And indeed, he does face death. And so verse 37, we have Jesus approaching the road leading down from the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of his disciples, again, his disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on earth and glory in the highest. For three years, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and calling people to follow him. He walked everywhere during those three years. But now for the last few clicks, as me learning new Canadian English words, just try to weave them into my sermon. Clicks, yeah, yeah. Nobody else uses clicks, right? That's a Canadian thing, right? Okay, but now for the last few clicks, he rode for the first time into the city. Now he rode for the first time into the city and it was downhill for that last bit. Approaching the Passover festival, the pilgrims there were supposed to arrive on foot, by the way, but Jesus comes riding a donkey. This is a billboard way to stick out. And it also connected immediately with Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. This would have triggered that he is sending a sign, a message. This is a sign act that would call for response. Not simply a symbol, but it is a sign in that it is a pointing and it is calling forth something in the minds of those that are seeing it. N.T. Wright says this, his riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives across Kidron and up to the Temple Mount spoke more powerfully than words could have done of a royal claim. Look, daughter of Zion, rejoice, shout, your king is coming, humble and riding on a donkey. To the Jews, it would have a messianic ring to it. To a Roman who might have been observing this, they probably thought, oh, there go the locals again having some crazy festival. But it is not something, it is out of the ordinary that's happening. Luke uses this word release again here, the verb luo in this case. He just, like in his announcement of public ministry in the beginning of his public ministry in Luke 4, now again, Jesus is coming and the donkey is loosed and he is coming in announcing the reign of God, the deliverance of God. 
In loosing the colt, there's an echo also of Jacob's blessing of Judah in Genesis 49. There's a clear identification going on here as well on how he's entering. He's coming in royal lowness instead of royal highness as he enters the city. I also like how Luke, you'll notice in Luke's account of this, he does not mention hosannas and he does not mention palm branches. And Luke is intentional about lots, well, everything, obviously, he does in his writing, Luke and Acts. But apparently he wants, in his retelling of the story, he wants us to get the point that Jesus coming into the city was not a new nationalism. It was not a new type of messianic uh, approach that is just about Israel and killing and vanquishing all of those that are not and those that are opposed. But rather, he comes not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And Luke goes so far as to remove the palm branches, which within that time of Second Temple Judaism, the palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabees revolt that had happened like a hundred and some years earlier when they overthrew the oppressors. And they used palm branches because, of course, Israel had, uh, it would not put images on its coinage, but it could put palm branches on. And those palm branches became a loaded signal. Like if you, uh, certain ways of using flags in times of, we see this in, well, I was going to make a convoy reference, but then I decided I don't want to get fired today. But anyway, the, the appropriation of the symbol in that particular instant would have had an incredibly nationalistic overtone. And Luke doesn't, he says, no palm branches. In fact, only one of the gospel writers says they were palm branches. Uh, the rest of them say branches of trees. But here we see Luke saying, I'm going to strip that out as I'm writing this gospel for people who may not get it, for people who may be outside or even within the Jewish context or the non-Jewish context reading the gospel. He removes the nationalistic symbols. And at the same time, he's still entering in as Messiah and King. So there's a mix of how the symbols are used in Luke. This powerful stuff to reflect on. Somebody should write a paper about that sometime. Okay, all right. So, keep in mind Luke's uh, gospel is aimed more, uh, perhaps more at Gentile converts, indeed, as he writes in Acts to Theophilus. So, all right, a little more we could say about that. Um, Luke took the flags off the platform. There we go. How we could say it that way. There was no uh, Canadian flag on the platform. There was no flag of the country. He removed the flag when he retells the story. The other thing when Luke's telling is there's no children there. And also, it may not be on a Sunday when this happens. But anyway, those are the debates for another time. So Luke does remind us that it was the crowd of disciples. The three synoptic writers, the three gospels that are the most similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John is sort of really unique, tell us that the crowd is not the larger crowd of the city, but the, his larger disciple group. It may have been 100, 200 people that were the larger group of disciples. These are not exactly the same people who probably were calling for his death just a few days later at the crucifixion. This was the crowd of people who were intrigued by Jesus, were curious by Jesus, were following at some level, were following Jesus in that larger group of disciples we see here. So they're probably, again, not the exact same people who are changing their voices. Some may have been, so it's not entirely wrong if we preach that a little bit, but I think it's interesting to note this in how Luke emphasizes this, the disciples, the disciples, the disciples in this whole passage. These folks certainly would not have fully understood what Jesus was talking about, and some of them may indeed scream crucify him, but some of them would have just scattered. We're told the disciples scattered at that crucifixion once it gets to that point. They will be tested. So he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that chant would not have been lost on anyone. This is Psalm 118, verse 26. It was spiritual words for future hope. Messiah was coming. And as I move towards the close of my message today, I'm actually going to play a short video before we get to the very end on understanding this messianic hope. What does it mean 
when the Bible talks about the Messiah. So I'm going to invite you. It's a, it's a little longer than I'd normally play for a clip if I don't usually play clips. But it, I think this is worth it. from the Bible Project, a great thing that we promote, put on our basic Christianity stuff on our website. But check this out. This was kind of what was building as Jesus came to Jerusalem. Maybe. I see head shaking. Okay, it's a great clip. We'll send it out later. <laughs> and there goes five minutes of my message. All right. <laughs> uh, so check this out. We'll send a link out later on the Bible Project of the Messiah. So this messianic expectation, just to summarize it, for Israelites, the Messiah referred to the promised king that would defeat evil and restore humanity to the ideal that God had at the beginning. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he is restoring humanity. Sorry, I see all kinds of things happening. Can we just skip past it now? Because I'm, I'm past it. <laughs> all right. We're good. All right. So I, I'm, the rest of the verses here before we get to verse 39 the Messiah, again, was this expectation, the person that would usher in the ultimate promise of God and usher in God's kingdom fully. And his mission was to destroy human evil and all of this. But in Jesus, their, their expectations of Messiah were shifted. Jesus' death, indeed, threw them for a loop. And so in Jesus' death, he becomes a type of Messiah that they weren't expecting, where instead of vanquishing all of the enemies of God, he brings a fullness of peace through his death. But it's not the final story because this death, again, fulfilled the promise that God made way back in the Garden of Eden. Evil had struck the Messiah's heel, but the Messiah still defeated evil, dealing with sin for all humanity. And when he rises from the dead, he asserts his ultimate authority over all death. And so the Messiahship in Jesus gets not only all the promises uh, fulfilled, but even redefined in the ultimate victory over all death and evil. So let's get to the last verses here. But... Jesus approaching, their expectations are rising, moving into Holy Week. But some of the Pharisees, by the way, last time Pharisees are mentioned by Luke, um, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. <laughs> why is he saying, why are they saying this? Well, there's probably two or three reasons. One, of course, is their concern because it is an occupied state by the empire. Remember, the great Pax Romana, the peace of the empire, which is bought by violence and suppression and power over and control and paying people off and co-option. They're worried that the, the sort of uh, tentative fake peace they have with Rome could be disrupted as someone's coming into the city claiming to be a king. But also, it may be that they're simply rejecting his message. You're not the Messiah. We've seen this song and dance before. This is going to end in a bad way. Tell them to be quiet. Let's just be over with this. But something else is happening in Jesus that has never happened before or will happen after. He is the Messiah of God. And he says, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. This proper response. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, yeah, no. To use a Minnesota phrase or a Midwestern phrase. Yeah, no. Which means no. Start with yeah, no. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. And he probably was playing a bit of a, a, a very serious joke on them as well in this because he's playing with the phrase sun and stone, which in Hebrew are very close. To, there's an Eben and then Ben, this idea. And so he's also playing on this as well. And that pun was common in rabbinic literature as well. 
uh, later on. So we see this, this pun going on, and Jesus saying, hey, if you're not going to be the sons, God can raise up the sons from stones, which is sort of a way of provoking them a little bit to think differently about what is the kingdom of God, what is the family of God. And Jesus' response is paradoxical. I like how Justo Gonzalez says this. Jesus' response is paradoxical. He does not wish them to claim the kingdom as his disciples understood that action. Yet he accepts their praises, their acclamation that foreshadow what will be later discovered, that he is indeed a king, but a king over all the kings of the earth. David Garland says this in Habakkuk chapter 2, and this one last thought before we land it. Judgment comes upon the city of Jerusalem because it has fostered bloodshed, injustice, and oppression of the poor in Habakkuk 2. And the stones cry out, the prophet says, in accusation against the religious and those in power. In fact, the reference to the stones in this present verse may have nothing to do with judgment, but pictures of arrival of Jesus in the city is momentous, so it requires a response. But I like his first thought on this, that this is also calling back to Habakkuk too, that even the creation, even the creation, as Paul says, the creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And even the stones crying out in accusation, and if the people won't praise him, creation is giving thanks for the king. Well, this morning, I want to just land and say this. Craddock says this, those hosannas and tree branches that are missing in Luke belong to parades and festivals with nationalism overtones. And Luke wants this event to carry no such implication. He is a king of us all. He calls us all to follow him. And so this morning, as we move towards asking these final questions, we need to ask, where are we in this story? What is the Lord saying to us? What is the Lord saying to you? And I had one other note, but it went away. So, boy, I'm having a morning today on Palm Sunday. These stones call out to us, and this passage calls out to us as well. And what are we going to do? How are we going to respond as we wrestle with Messiah Jesus one more time? And I think one of the things that is compelling to me in this passage is those disciples are faithful and they're crying out and yet they'll be scattered. They'll be scattered in just a few short days. They won't know how to respond to this claim because it's so outside of the way we were trained to think and we were trained to be. So Palm Sunday calls us into that story as well. How will we respond to this Jesus who is still calling us and still drawing? Now, of course, we get the rest of the story. We see what happens in the end, but they don't know that. And so as we enter Holy Week, we reflect on those things and we sit in this time as we lean into what will come. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we move towards closing. And we were going to do communion today, but I think I'm going to uh, uh, skip communion this morning. If that's, can we do that? All right. And I just want to uh, pray for you and pray with us as we move into the rest of the story this week. The worship team can come up as well if they're ready. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And as we are 
entering into this time where Christians around the world are specifically remembering who you are and what you've done. I pray that we would learn as well that you came to be a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom, and that you call us to be a different kind of humanity back and forward into the purposes that you have set for us to be a kingdom of priests, those who love outrageously, those who show a different way of relating to one another and to power. And as you came humbly on that donkey, both playing into all of the expectations of prophet, priest, and king, but also now fulfilling them in a unique way and giving full definition to them. May we open our minds to you entering in to be God how you reveal God to be versus how we want or want to force you to be. And we see this in your way of coming, this power from below, this identifying with those that need to experience release from the oppression of the world around us, whether it is personal sins that we struggle with or social sins around us. That when you come, you come to announce good news, that there is compassion, there is God is on mission, there is the justice of the kingdom breaking in. And so Holy Spirit, may this community at Pilgrim be a reflection of the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who enters in to declare release and loosing. And so this Palm Sunday, Lord, we worship you, we praise you for showing us this way and for calling us to follow you. And Lord, thank you that we see the full story, that we, we have the advantage that the first disciples didn't. We see the fullness of evil unleashed, but we also see that death does not have the final word. Not in our lives, not in the nation's life, not in our neighbor's life, nor in the life to come. And so we say, indeed, praise you. Deliver, Lord Jesus. Free us. Save us. We call on you. We give our allegiance to you this day. In your name, the name that means indeed salvation. We call on your name, Jesus. Amen.